the elephant in the church. So please turn to uh, Joshua chapter 5. Our hope for today is not uh, for human opinion to prevail, but for God's word and for our calling to follow Jesus, to, uh, to, to prevail among us, to be the thing that unites us, to be the thing that uh, gets us out of bed in the morning. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Lord, I ask today that we would see you, that we would encounter you, uh, that even, Lord, if we encounter you and find ourselves in need of repentance, that that would be indeed the movement of our heart to bend towards you bow before you and before your word. And so Lord, whatever it is in our own hearts that you might be calling out today, uh, whatever fresh perspective and fresh direction we need today, would you, would you meet us here and show us the way? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I find this a fascinating story and my mind and heart was drawn to the story as I thought about uh, sharing on this subject of the elephant in the room. Of course, if you're not sure what we mean by that, we're simply talking about, as the old expression is, the, the elephant in the room is that subject that uh, everyone knows is there, uh, but no one really knows what to do about it. Uh, I think there is a great danger in the church of, uh, and I'm a hunter, right? So I, I believe there's a time and a place to go elephant hunting um, and this is one of those times. As I thought about the tensions that we all know and feel as it comes to uh, the pandemic that we've been experiencing and various government guidelines and our, our attitudes towards wearing masks and getting vaccines and, and then more recently the uh, Freedom Convoy, it's obvious, I think we all know, that we don't all feel the same about those things. And uh, for some of us, we've been extremely vocal about those things. We've been very influential, even, towards other people in the church. And uh, it's been hard. It's been painful for, for many, uh, perhaps for all of us. And uh, that's why there's a need for us to talk about this. So we're going to do that by using this little story from the book of Joshua. And we begin in chapter 13 with Joshua uh, and I asked this question, what was Joshua doing? Because we find him in verse 13, he's out near Jericho. So if you know anything about the book of Joshua, the next chapter is uh, one of the pinnacles of Joshua because it's the battle of Jericho. It's when the people march around the city and they, uh, they make the loud shout and God brings down the walls of Jericho. But in chapter 5, uh, both, both of these were really bad military strategy to march around a city and yell, not the usual way to conquer a city. And then in chapter 5, they circumcised all their men right before the battle. So uh, I wonder if Joshua is out here thinking, how is this going to go? 
I wonder if he's lost in his own thoughts, if he's making plans, if he's, and I can picture him on one of these hillsides behind the city here, just looking at those walls. And we remember, of course, that Joshua was one of the spies who originally had gone into the land of Canaan. Remember, 12 spies were sent in to see what the land was like, and this is the report they brought back. The people who live there are powerful, the cities are fortified and very large, and the people we saw there of great size, we seem like grasshoppers. And of course, 10 of those Spies convinced all the people of Israel that we can't possibly go in, we can't win this victory, whereas Joshua and Caleb said, we can trust God. So I wonder if Joshua's out there, all of these thoughts going through his mind. Now he has taken over for Moses as the leader of the people of Israel, and now it's his responsibility to lead the people into battle. So what's he thinking? Making plans? Is he being a little bit self-sufficient? Is he trying to figure this out on his own? We don't know exactly. But suddenly he encounters a man standing in front of him, verse 13, with a drawn sword in his hand. Who is this man? It's kind of cryptic in the story. It doesn't really give us a name, doesn't uh, specify, but the man himself gives this reply in verse 14. He says he's the commander of the army of the Lord. That is the name the man gives himself, the commander of the army of the Lord. And then as the rest of these two verses unfold, we know exactly who this is because first of all, Joshua falls face down before this person, this figure. And this is not like a case in the book of Daniel where Daniel falls down before an angel and the angel says, don't do that, I'm I'm just a servant like you. Or in the book of Revelation, the apostle John does the same thing to an angel and the angel says, don't do that, I'm just a servant like you. The commander of the Lord's army said no such thing. And so when Joshua falls on his face before him, he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, stand up, I'm an angel, or stand up, I'm just a servant. In fact, when Joshua says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The man says this, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And now we know immediately who this is. There's no coincidence that Joshua's former mentor, Moses, had heard the very same words in Exodus chapter 3 when, as a shepherd, he's out in the wilderness and he sees this bush on fire and wonders why it's not actually being consumed. And so he approaches it, and in that miraculous vision or or sign, he meets with Yahweh, who tells him he's going to go and set the people of Israel free. And he has this conversation with God himself who says to Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. So now we know exactly who this is. Theologians have different uh, names for this. Some call it a theophany, a general appearance of God where he takes the form of a human being. Or or many more would, would call this a Christophany. This is Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Godhead, showing up in human form before he's born into this world as a human being. This is God. The man with the sword is God. Which raises this interesting question about how the man answers the simple question that Joshua poses to him. And not a surprising question, as Joshua, all of his soldiers are recovering from circumcision and he's out near the city of Jericho, the first battle they're about to face and now there's this guy with a sword 
makes perfect sense to ask him, are you on my side or are you on their side? Are you for us or for our enemies? And what we find the answer to be is, I find, confusing? Because the man says, neither. Or, in your version, depending on how it's translated, it just simply, the man simply says, no. Which doesn't make any sense to me because surely Joshua, who is leading the people of God, remember God, we learned two weeks ago, is literally camping in the midst of his people in the tabernacle and there's this pillar of fire and there's a pillar of cloud. There's, there, there's the reality that God has chosen Israel. He's, he's actually created Israel out of Abraham's offspring. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's put Joshua in charge of his people. In chapter 1 of this book, we find God saying, be strong and of good courage. You're going to lead my people into the promised land and everywhere you set your foot, I will give you. But when God meets with Joshua, the leader of his people, and when Joshua asks him, are you for us? The answer comes back, And you can imagine why this story came to mind when I thought about how will we address the elephant in the room. When we have had people on essentially two sides for most of this, two sides of, of a coin, two sides of an argument, in which we have not been very successful at coming together and seeing this in the same way. And I Envision in my own mind, somehow we get Jesus into this room with us, Jesus and the elephant, and we ask the question, so Jesus, whose side are you on? And I have a feeling he would take a play out of this story and just simply say, shake his head and say no. And what does it mean? Well, how could he say that to Joshua? How could he say that about his own people? And here's my first answer to the question, and that is Joshua asked the wrong question. Because the question isn't, God, are you on my side? And that's what we want, right? That's, when we get into debates like we've been in and struggle with understanding things and seeing things the same way, what we want is to be vindicated. That's what we want. That's what I've wanted. I've wanted to be vindicated. I've wanted people who didn't see it my way to have their minds changed. And if I could change their mind, great. Or even if they could experience some aspect of this pandemic that would prove to them that I was right. That's what I want. I want vindication. And if it has to come from God, so be it. Because God, you're on my side, right? You see this the way I see it. And it's the wrong question. Because the question isn't, God, are you on my side? The question is turned around on us. Are we on God's side? And I think that's part of what's happening here is Joshua sees this, this narrow slice of the story. He sees Jericho in front of him. He knows that there's going to be a battle but what he's lost sight of is the fact that God 
hasn't brought them into the promised land just to simply destroy all other nations and bless the nation of Israel. Because even as Joshua was looking over this city, if he looked closely, if he had binoculars, he could have seen in the city wall a window and he could have seen in the window a scarlet thread. Do you remember the story? How when the spies went and checked out Jericho, they got, they got housed in the home of a woman named Rahab, prostitute, who expressed to those spies the fact that her people realized that the God of Israel was real. They'd heard about the miracles. They'd seen what he had done. And their attitude was, we're going to fight this God. We're going to fight this Yahweh. But Rahab, in housing the, the spies, in, in, in giving them safety, she was expressing her faith, her desire, not to fight against the God of Israel, but to trust the God of Israel. In fact, Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews 11, in that chapter we know as the chapter of faith, or the hall of faith, some people have called it. And not only that, but ultimately when the battle is won, when the city is taken, Rahab is rescued. Not only is she brought into the people of Israel as part of their nation, she's literally becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Did you know in the Old Testament, one of the other Christophanies or Theophanies, depending on how you understand this, was with a woman named Hagar. Did you know this? Genesis, I think it's chapter 14. Hagar, who the handmaiden of Sarah, who Abraham impregnates because Sarah said, hey, maybe this is how we can have a child. And so Hagar gets pregnant, and Sarah gets jealous and throws Hagar out of the house, and she's in the wilderness pregnant or with a child, with her child at that point, and God shows up. To Hagar, who's the mother of the Arab nations, not the Jewish nations, this is the heart of God. This is God's heart of redemption. So when Joshua says to him from his narrow perspective, God is for us, God is for us, and asks the question, are you for us or for our enemies? God can simply answer the question as no. Because he knows there's people, even in the land of Canaan, where his judgment is about to fall, who are going to turn their hearts to trust him, like Rahab. And so we need to understand this as well, that God's purpose and plan is much bigger than ours. And we ask ourselves the question, am I hoping that God is on my side or have I surrendered my life to be on God's side? That's the question. But as we consider the elephant in the room and our various perspectives on COVID and guidelines and freedom convoys, I want us to consider that perhaps God would give us the same answer. That he might shake his head, perhaps in sorrow, and simply say no. When we hope that he would say, yes, I'm on your side. Yes, you're right. That he, as he sees the bigger picture of what he's doing, would simply say no. And I see four lessons from this story that I want us to bring into our current circumstances here in Canada in 2022. Four lessons. And here's the first one. God has a way of disrupting our plans. And one of the reasons that this whole pandemic thing has been so hard for us is because we have had it so good. For the most part, we, we've, we've had it, and I know sometimes we've, 
we got some financial challenges or we got some health challenges in our family or various things, but for the most part here in Canada, we have lived a sheltered life, a blessed life. We've had so much prosperity and wealth and pleasure. And this whole pandemic thing has disrupted that. And what we have failed to see is that God is in the disruption. That God has intervened in our lives, just like he came and stood before Joshua and interrupted his, perhaps his self-reliance or his self-plans. And he interrupted that so that Joshua could come to a better place where he recognized God's presence and God's plan. And I fear that we have struggled to see that in these last two years here in our circumstance. God has come and stood in the way of our prosperity and our ease and our pleasure. And we haven't liked it one bit. Why would God do that? What is it that he's trying to say to us? What is he trying to express in this moment of time? Well, there's probably a lot of things. He's been reminding us that this world is not forever. That this world is, is broken and it's, it's groaning and that ultimately there's a time coming when this world is going to be brought to an end. He's disrupted our lives to remind us that we're actually not meant to, to, to pursue ease and pleasure and comfort, that as followers of Jesus, we're, we're actually meant to take up a cross and follow him even in hardship. And so we've been in a moment where we've experienced some of that hardship, hardship that people around the world have been knowing for years and generations and decades. We've had the opportunity to have our plans disrupted. Sadly, I feel like it's been a moment when God has shaken our world. Many people in our world have felt the weight of restrictions and the weight of illness. They've lost loved ones. They've lost jobs. And sadly, I fear that we as the people of God have been so concerned about our experience and our feelings and our opinions that we have failed to be the touch of Jesus to the people all around us who are feeling the pain of this moment. I fear that we will look back at this time as the church and realize, boy, we spent so much time arguing and wanting to convince others that, that we're right. You should see this my way. And we haven't and didn't take the opportunity to serve our broken world around us. God has a way of disrupting our plans. Are you convinced yet that COVID is part of God's sovereign plan for us in this moment, that he's doing something with it? That's the first lesson I see in our story. And then as the man, the commander of the Lord's army, speaks to Joshua and says, neither, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, we find Joshua falling face down to the ground in reverence. And here's my second point. We need to spend more time on our face, less time on our soapbox. This has been a period of time when we have needed to be on our face for all kinds of reasons. For our own pain and our own loss and struggle, we've needed to be on our face. We've needed to be in the presence of God. We've needed to be in his word. We've needed to be in prayer. We've needed to be on our face for the people around us who are struggling and suffering. We've needed to be on our face praying for the unity of our church when it's so obvious that we haven't seen these things in the same way. 
We've needed to be on our faces, Scripture so clearly says, to be praying for our governments who are making decisions about various mandates and restrictions, and, and yet so many of us have taken this opportunity to climb aboard a soapbox of pride. I'm speaking to myself here now. of assuming that I know better than those other people on the other side who are so foolish. We've allowed this moment to fill our hearts with pride and we've operated in pride. And in so doing, we've so missed the character of God and the teaching of Scripture, which says things like, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Or this convicting one, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. I said in the first service, I didn't, I'd never knew what an epidemiologist was two years ago, and I'd never met one. But I've met a lot since. Because I've met people on all sides of this argument who somehow have claimed the knowledge to know what's best for everybody in a pandemic because they found some web page or some YouTube channel or some Facebook post that convinced them that the way they're thinking about this is true and correct. When those who've gone to university and studied for years and decades are somehow in the dark. That's just foolishness, isn't it? Or how about the reality that those who are in authority over us have had in this moment to make decisions about life and death because the simple fact of the matter is, the more open our government allows us to live during a pandemic, the more people die and the more people get really sick. Versus the more restrictions that are had, we all know, the more suffering there is for children who have to be at home and parents who have to be home with their children every day and, and all of these kinds of issues that are very real and very painful. And somehow we've decided that we have the answers, we know best how to manage this balance between life and death and our governments don't know anything and our medical people don't know anything. How could we possibly, in our own hearts, raise ourselves up to that level to think, I've got the answers. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. And fools give full vent to their age, but the wise bring calm in the end. May I simply say, folks, that uh, for all of the good that we see in social media and in things like Facebook, and there's plenty of good that we can, we can see and use that for, but there's also plenty of bad, plenty of danger. Social media has given us the platform to believe that we do know and to air our opinions publicly. And so the sad reality is, for many of us, we have believed in our own hearts that we have the answers. We've expressed, expressed those things on social media in such a way that others have been inflamed in their own feelings about these things. And the reality is we've said things that aren't true. And we've shared stories that aren't true. If we could only take an hour or two hours to go through the realities of social media, which in the, at the end of the day is all about making money. 
So we can talk about words like bots and logarithms and all of these things that are part of social media that create this echo chamber that causes us to, to get more and more inflamed in our own opinions and feelings about these things. And not only that, but to propagate those to others. Second Timothy says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I always, I always smile when I see bad words in the Bible because I wasn't allowed to say stupid. <clears throat> but God does. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. And hear this, folks. Whatever side of the coin you find yourself on, hear these words. Be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. And yes, this has been God coming and disrupting our lives for good. Satan has used as a trap and a scheme which has gotten God's people off track, which has divided churches and families. It is a trap of the devil and he has taken us captive to do his will. May it not be so of us, brothers and sisters. So God has a way of disrupting our plans. And we need to get on our face. We need to be humble before God. We need to be humble before our circumstances. Not assume that we know better than everyone else. We need to be quiet before a God who's in sovereign control. And here's number three. We need to get a marching orders from God. So Joshua gets this strange answer. Neither. Verse 14, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Don't you love that? What message does my Lord have for his servant? God forgive me, me. For how often in these two years I have been filled with my own messages for God's servants rather than asking God, what is your message to this servant? We need to get our marching orders from God. It's grieved me in my own life and in the life of the church how we have tended to turn to historical arguments and political arguments and and appealing to our feelings and our convictions and our passions and our emotions to excuse and explain our attitude and behaviors when all the while God's word stands open before us to instruct us about how we might live in a moment like this. And primarily, we are called to be followers of Jesus. That's the plain and simple calling upon our lives. And so I'm so thankful that we have four Gospels so we can go and mine the stories of Jesus and ask that question of the Holy Spirit as we read, what would Jesus do? What I find interesting is to first of all consider the moment when Jesus lived in which the Roman Empire had control of the known world, including the land of Israel. This is a bust of Tiberius Claudius Caesar, 
who was the emperor of Rome during the time of the Lord's ministry. The emperor was the ultimate ruler. He was believed to be a, a, a kind of God in a culture that was polytheistic, where there were many gods. And here these people had come in, and we know how the Jewish people felt about Roman occupation. Why did they hate people like Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Because he was working for the Romans. He was taking money from his own countrymen. It was going to Rome. Jesus lived in a time where the land of Israel was in occupation from this wicked world empire. And yet we never once find Jesus complaining, railing against the emperor or Rome. We've got to stop and think about that. In fact, in John chapter 6, we, or in the Gospel of John, I'm not sure if it's chapter 6, but there is a story where we're told that the people wanted to make Jesus king by force. Why? Because they'd seen his miracles. He can heal people. He can walk on water. He can raise the dead. So let's make him king, and he will overthrow Rome. And Jesus walked through the crowd because he knew his destiny at that moment in the story of redemption was not a, was not a throne. It was a cross. Jesus never once, he never once showed us any example of railing against the Roman Empire. In fact, he said, when asked if people should pay taxes, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. When questioned by Pilate before his crucifixion about whether he was king of the Jews and and about his kingdom, he would simply say, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then we can turn to the apostles, many of whom learned to follow Jesus by literally living with Jesus and following him. And we find the same thing. There's never a single example of the apostles, even though as we get into later years in the writing of Scripture where we're getting closer to the years of Nero when Christians literally were lit up, covered in tar and martyred in the most wicked and evil ways, never once do we find the apostles railing against the government. Instead, what do we find Jesus and the apostles saying? Predominantly in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus saying these things. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching his followers, this is how to behave in a wicked and broken world. That's why Jesus talks about loving your enemies and, and here's what you should do when you're persecuted and, and here's how we deal with sin. And He's talking about, this is how you follow me in a broken and wicked world. And this is what he says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Do you know who would do that? Roman soldiers. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Do you know who would do that? Roman soldiers. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Do you know who would do that? Roman soldiers. They could, they could just accost any Jewish citizen and say, hey, carry my armor. And the Jewish citizen would be forced to. They had to by law 
carry it one mile. What did Jesus say? Go to. You know why? You can have some great conversations in two miles. They might even see Jesus in you if you go two miles. It's a completely upside down a philosophy of life and of character, but this is what Jesus taught us as his followers to do. And then the apostles continue and say, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. It is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. They're talking about Rome. Gets even more explicit. In some cases they speak very specifically about the emperor as Peter does here. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds. Glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who sent who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So we do have marching orders. God's word does address moments like the ones that we're in. And then we have these commands, and so many of them, which apply to all of us, no matter what side we fall on these various issues. We hear God's word say to us, as God's people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other, forgive one another. Honestly, have you found yourself angry? Maybe at me, maybe at the church elders, maybe at the government, maybe at people who don't see this the same as you. Have you felt yourself naturally wanting to distance yourself? Have you stopped contacting certain friends? Is there, is there certain people you're just not having over anymore? Is there, is there a small group you've stopped going to? Is, and have you justified this kind of separation in your heart, a kind of hatred in your heart to people who don't see it the same way. I know the Lord's convicted me of this deeply. And his word says, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. We need to get our marching orders from God. And one last thing. When Joshua asks the question, what message does my Lord have for a servant? The commander of the Lord's army replies, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. It's interesting. Here's God explaining to Joshua, here now is how you will express your worship to me. And Joshua did so. He submitted himself to the clearly revealed will of God for him in that moment. You're going to take off your shoes and you're going to worship. We need to worship God acceptably. God's word says so in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Worship God acceptably. In other words, it's possible for us to commit acts that we want to believe we are doing for God. We are honoring God with this action. But the reality is, according to God's word, is it might not be if it's not according to his word. So we must worship God acceptably. How do we do that? We worship God acceptably 
when we're worshiping him in the way that he's revealed himself and in the way that he's called us to worship. We do that by following Jesus. So there's an elephant in the room. I am so grateful to God for the ways that he's maintained unity in this church family through all of these months. But I know that we have pain. I know that there's damage. I know that there's strained relationships, broken relationships. I know that there's suspicion. I know that there's pride and an arrogance one side toward the other. Hear God say to us, as we ask him, you on my side are theirs. We hear God say, no. And our marching orders are to line up behind the man with the sword. Now, understand that in this moment, he's not holding the sword. He was about to lead his people into the promised land and bring judgment on God's enemies for, for their wicked ways. And there is a time coming when Revelation 19 says that Jesus will come again with a sword. And we will line up behind him as he comes and brings judgment upon this world and sets up his kingdom here. But for now, he calls us not to take up a sword, but to take up our cross and follow him. May God help us to see the beauty of this, to see our calling in this. As we close, I want us to read this scripture together. It's kind of long, but it's a, a better sermon that I can give on these topics. Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. I'm going to ask you, would you stand with me? And would we uh, read these verses together <clears throat> in closing? Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 
Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Would you remain standing as we sing one closing song? Is to follow Jesus. We are here as the body of Christ. We are your people. And Father, we ask for forgiveness where we have gone astray, where we have gone our own ways, where we have decided to choose a throne over a cross. Father, we repent and we recognize that we, uh, we so often choose our ways over yours. Thank you for the message today and the reminder that it is not uh, you who is for us or for others, but you have invited us to join you what you are doing. And that is our desire as followers of Christ, as a church family. Father, we pray that we would be unified, not in our opinions, not in our preferences, not in our past or our current circumstances, but we would be unified in Christ. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for speaking to us, and I pray you'd continue to work in our hearts, that you would help us to examine our own ways and to turn back to you and to point others to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming.